Hello, I'm Peter Kafka, and you're listening to Recode Media, a podcast where I sit down with the most interesting people in media and technology to understand what happens when those two things collide. Thank you for coming, Alex Gibney. Delighted to be here. You are a famous documentarian. So you're here to talk about your newest movie called Zero Days. Um, you'll be able to see it in a movie theater. You can probably watch it day and date, I think, as well. Day and date on uh, VOD, Video On Demand, and also iTunes and uh, other electronic media. Same day. It all comes out the same day, which I think is a really good idea. You can decide how you want to watch it. This is one of the great things about consuming media in 2016, and particularly if you want to consume documentaries, and it turns out those things are closely tied, right? There's a media boom, there's a documentary boom. This all benefits you because you make a documentary every <laughs> exactly three months, two months. Well, I don't make them that fast, but I, I do work on a number at the same time. But your output is astonishing. I mean, people, let's rattle off some of your, you rattle off some of your films, so I don't get the names wrong. Going Clear. That's the Scientology one. piece. Yeah. Steve Jobs, The Man in the Machine. Taxi to the Dark Side, Client Nine, We Steal Secrets, Mayor Maximo Culpa, Silence in the House of God, a Sinatra special on HBO, uh, James Brown, Mr. Dynamite was the name of the film. This is about James Brown. This is an incredible amount of, of stuff. This is all the, literally the last few years, right? I mean, yeah. this is four or five years worth of movies. You probably are doing, what, three or four a, a year? Well, not that many. Not every year. Otherwise, uh, I wouldn't be here. I'd be dead. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then you, and you have a production company, Jigsaw Productions, which also puts out stuff that you don't touch as well, right? Yeah, uh, we have a company that, and we do a number of series. We do have a series for CNN called Death Row Stories, all about you know horrific death row cases. We have, uh, we did a series. We're doing a series for Amazon called New Yorker Presents uh, about the. New Yorker magazine. Are you making this many documentaries because you can, because there's a market for them, both? Both. Uh, and let's face it, there was a period where I, you know, I, I couldn't make any documentaries. I was sitting in a small garret-like office looking out the tiny slit-like window and wondering where the next gig was going to come. So I had the opportunity now to make them, and, and I do. And I, I have a you know, I have a great group of people around me who, you know, make my job a, a lot easier. There was a time when I had to be my own lawyer, I had to be my own accountant, things like that. Growing up, it seemed like no one knew what a documentary was, and periodically a Michael Moore would break through with something that, that had some sort of mainstream success. But it was really, you know, during the Oscars, they would, they would say, and there's a documentary award. And that would be the, and most people, that was their exposure to documentaries. Now there's a boom of them. I attribute it to HBO and, and Netflix. Does that sound right to you? I think so. I, I actually attribute it to the fact that they've gotten a lot better. Uh -huh. And I think reality TV oddly helped. You know, people got used to the idea that you could watch stuff that was starring real people, and it was interesting. But in the documentary world, I think the big difference is that slowly but surely people started watching these documentaries, and you weren't allowed to say that they were documentaries 15 years ago. What did, what did you call them instead? Well, you'd call them something, but everybody said, please don't use the word documentary. <laughs> Nobody will watch them. Now people gravitate to them because they're great. I mean, they're, the storytelling is so f terrific. You know, they're movies, which is, you know, what the best ones always were. You know, back in the day, films like Gimme Shelter, that was a movie. And it's a magnificent documentary, maybe one of the greatest. So that, I think, it That's really, the Rolling Stones film. Yeah, that's the Rolling Stones film done by the Maisels brothers. Yep. Right. Um, but yeah, it, it used to be, if you saw a documentary, it was, it was disguised, right? It was a concert film. Right, That that's happened right. to have a documentary attached D to it. A right. documentary was serious and, and kind of dull, and oh, maybe it'd be on PBS as well. That's right. It, would, it was spinach. It was a lesson. But now, 
you know, documentaries are really not only setting a high bar, but they're kind of pushing the envelope in terms of cinematic form, I think. And also they're getting into real life stories that everybody wants to know about. And it turns out, you know, it's more interesting to look at the real Lance Armstrong than to see an actor play him. And they're a way to tell a sort of genre as well. I mean, there's a, there's a boomlet in true crime stories. Right. You've done a few of those. Yep. People, I guess, have always liked biographies. Um, I think part of it is just that if you expose people to it and say this is not something you have to go to the theater for, this is not something you have to watch in class, but you could watch it at home whenever you want, turns out you like it. But you don't work with one distributor in particular. Sometimes you make an HBO film. Sometimes you make stuff on your own. You're not committed to anybody in particular. Yeah, I'm not monogamous when it comes to making documentaries. And, and, and also part of this is, right, it's, it's relatively cheap. For HBO or Netflix or whomever, yeah, it doesn't cost as much as some as Game of Thrones, for example. Right, uh, and, and you, we were talking before. There's two Steve Jobs movies in the last year, and you were saying yours did better, sort of as a, in, in terms of profitability. Sure, I think that's true. There's no doubt about it because you're not paying Aaron Sorkin <laughs> or Kate Winslet. Exactly, but you know, it it did really well when it came out over Labor Day weekend, and it, it's made everybody money. I mean, it, it, because a lot of people. Went to see it, and I think they were they went to see it because well, I think it was well made, but it was about the real Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs was in a way kind of the the narrator of that story, uh, the real Steve Jobs, and it was fascinating to watch him. Yeah, I, I, let's talk about that movie. I saw it. Um, I saw when you premiered it at South by Southwest. Apple folks didn't like it. They walked. They literally walked out of the room. Yeah, anything critical of Steve Jobs is, and is I, heresy. I got to say, when it started, because it was, I think it had CNN's branding attached to it. CNN had commissioned it or paid for it. Correct. And it didn't strike me that that CNN was going to make uh, or or pay for a documentary about Steve Jobs that was really quite negative about Steve Jobs. And it started off, and, and I thought, oh, this is going to be sort of a hagiography. Quickly turns turns out you're very critical of him. Did you talk to CNN about that in advance, or you'd already made the movie and they and they bought it? They knew no, they no, no. Doing. They were in from the start. And um, you said, "I want to make a story that sort of tears down Steve Jobs." And I work. didn't say it that way. I mean, I wanted to make us a, a critical biography would be the way to put it. Yeah. But when I say critical biography, I mean I think there's a lot of stuff that's quite admirable about Steve Jobs that's in the film, but it's uh, it's balanced. And and I think that people were surprised because Apple had done such a good job of creating the myth of Steve Jobs. Right. And so if you included any critical material, which I did, then you know people got upset. Well, I think it's mostly critical, right? It says Steve Jobs has done many amazing things, and then here are some unpleasant things about Steve Jobs that most people don't talk about, and then you focus the movie on them. Uh, Apple didn't like it. I think you said that, that Apple, well, you say in the movie, Apple, you've got a, a shot of Apple not helping you, right? Not, right. Not they they the said they didn't have the resources to help us. <laughs> They're a very small company. <laughs> They're just scraping by. And and I think you said afterwards that the Apple executives and Steve Jobs' wife, Lorene, had, had actively sort of campaigned. Oh, yeah. No, Lorene well. reached out to people to try to muscle them not to talk. One of the most interesting things I thought about that movie was, I think you just mentioned it, is, is it's narrated by Steve Jobs. There's so much media from Steve Jobs. And I think if you thought about it for a second, you realize, oh, yeah, I've seen lots of footage of him speaking. But we you, used you, that. Can, you compiled it all. We it's, did. It's, we compiled it all. We also found one piece of footage that most people hadn't seen, which was a deposition that he gave to the SEC when the SEC was examining improper financial transactions at Apple. And that deposition is fascinating because in a deposition, of course, you have to give your own life story. Yeah. 
but it's the arrogance and the contempt with which this it is about the, the backdating SEC. of options. Yes, correct. And the the transcript of that deposition had come out, and it came out years after the fact, and it got a little bit of attention. People moved on, and when you see it in the movie, it's it's striking because this is Steve Jobs, someone who can pretty much create his own reality very successfully, and here he's in a room that he doesn't want to be in. He's forced to by law, and he right. has to talk to these lawyers. And the combination of contempt he has yes. for everyone around him, or at least the people speaking to him, uh, and then self-pity. And self-pity, yeah. that's right. Th- that was one of the most striking things about it. Here's the guy who sat astride the world's most valuable corporation, and you can see him kind of dissolve into, people are so mean to me. You know, Do you was, think he believed that? He says, he says, and again, you should watch the movie for yourself. He says, well, the reason I, I, I felt bad that no one was rewarding me for the success I brought to Apple. And <laughs> it, it, I, I can't do it justice, but he no, says no, no one, no it's, one it's patted remarkable. me on the back. Yeah, he was, he was pouting because people didn't, he didn't feel they were giving him enough money or credit for Apple, which is remarkable considering how much they raised him up on a pedestal. But, you know, I don't think Steve Jobs is unique in that. One of the things I've discovered, and I've made a number of films about very powerful people, is somehow the more powerful you get, the more you feel like you're somehow a victim, the more thin-skinned you get, which I I find rather extraordinary. But it seems to be part of the package. Yeah, I find that, and I'm still always surprised by it and remind myself that I see that. When I meet high-achieving people, usually executives, I'm always astonished that they are are upset about a criticism they've received from someone in the press or the internet or some, right. some slight. And I figure, how could you possibly achieve what you need to achieve and, and spend time thinking about the story had this sentence, he didn't like the sentence or the cover image or whatever it was. And then you realize whatever, if you're going to do some, some amateur psychology, that whatever propels them to pull this stuff off is probably some, there's some insecurity there at the same time. Yeah, Lance Armstrong at the height of his power before he was brought down by the doping scandal was famous for calling tiny newspapers himself calling. And actually Steve Jobs did that too. He called big newspapers as well, but he would call individual bloggers. Yeah. And, uh, you know, with the slightest criticism, he would call and rain, what's that line from Gladiator? Uh, unleash hell. He yeah. would unleash hell on them. I mean, for Jobs, at least there was a there was also methodology, right? Like he he could achieve results that way. He knew that if Steve Jobs calls a certain reporter of the New York Times or wherever whatever other outlet, that was really meaningful and that could help shape coverage. It could, though. I mean, I wouldn't say it always succeeded because he was he was usually pretty sharp and acerbic. But it was interesting to me. I actually respected that part of it because. I thought that, you know, instead of having the PR flack call, yeah. uh, he called himself. I, I, I give him credit for that. Oh, yeah. No, it's, it's a really effective technique. I yeah. mean, the CEO calls you, you pick up the phone, you right. listen. It means something. I, I asked you this at, at a thing in Austin. I'll ask you again. Did, do you like Steve Jobs? I both admire and am appalled by him. I, I think there were some things about him that were really magnificent and some things that were just horrible. And, and, and I think they got worse the more power he got. There was recently on Facebook, there was circulating a, a footage of him prior to sort of, he'd just come back to the company. He was about to relaunch, I guess, the iMac. And he's giving a sort of run up to, to the new marketing campaign. And it was really striking because in your film, you've got all this footage of him. He wasn't this incredibly charismatic character. And I think now that he's gone, you sort of are starting to forget just that natural charisma he had. And there, there is no, no one's replicated that. Elon Musk is a popular character right now. Right. Uh, in moguldom, but there's, he doesn't have that kind of energy. Well, he was a great storyteller, and he was a magnificent performer. I mean, one of the interesting things in in that film is we use very early on some footage of him when he first started out selling Apple products. I mean, he was always the face of Apple. 
And in that footage, he kind of looks like a Tupperware salesman. He always makes these grand gestures, you know, very artificial and very sincere, try to look into the buyer's eyes, you know, all of that hokey salesman stuff. By the end, he's up on stage sitting in in an armchair looking like he's invited you in to his living room so he can tell you about these cool products. It was very carefully stage managed, but the way he wrote it, the way he acted it, it's so natural, and he has this huge auditorium of people eating out of his hand. So he was a magnificent performer. And you'll see people trying to replicate him. You'll see them striding on the stage, right. and they, they do, people will do sort of product launches and releases in that style, and it's now so baked in right. to what people do now in the technology so world. Yeah. And, and just sort of standard, right? right. You realize, no, th- there was one guy who did this in a way that no one else ever Correct. has. We were just talking about one of your older films, the Steve Jobs documentary. Let's talk about the one that's coming out now. Sure. Zero Days, plural. It's the story of the Stuxnet virus. Did Correct. I pronounce that correctly? That's right. So, well, you, you tell the story in your own words better than I can. Well, the, the Stuxnet virus or worm, which is a kind of self-replicating virus, um, was something that was launched by the U.S. and Israel against the nuclear facilities at Natanz in Iran. And what it was designed to do and what made it so remarkable is it made the leap from the virtual to the real. This was computer code that once inside Natanz, and there was an aspect to it that allowed it to get inside, uh, which is interesting, but once inside Natanz, it infected something called a programmable logic a controller, a PLC, and that controlled the centrifuges, which are the things that enrich uranium. Yep. So what happened was it took over and it monitored the entire operation for a number of days. And when it was ready, on its own, without any command from the outside, it then launched an attack. And it made the centrifuges spin wildly, either very fast or very slowly, until about a thousand of them blew apart. I mean, there were a number of different kinds of attacks, but that's essentially So there's a way you can tell this story. One could tell the story, say this is the story of a daring attack on a a real threat, a real-world threat, and this was done with sort of super high-tech espionage, and it worked really well, and it saved hundreds because no one actually had to go attack the facility, and maybe thousands or millions of lives. This is a great, tremendous success. Um, You know, this is the daring and successful story of of U.S. and, and Israeli hackers. This is not your take. No, though I would say that there's part of me that believes that it was an incredible operation and also a very powerful piece of software that did or may have prevented Israel from bombing Iran, which the United States was terrified about. And this is something I learned in the film. That was really the reason that we participated in the operation. We were terrified that Israel was going to bomb Iran, which would inevitably draw us into a war with Iran. Okay, but Coming back to the Stuxnet virus, I think the really interesting thing is that in part due to the actions of one of the actors, in this case Israel, it escaped from Natanz. It was always supposed to be secret. It escaped and started infecting computers all over the world. And as a result of that, now the blueprint for this kind of weapon is available to everybody. And it set off a kind of cyber weapon arms race that is extremely disquieting because it threatens critical infrastructure all over the world and is being done in secret. So just to keep playing devil's advocate, you're sort of describing this as a Hiroshima and Nagasaki, right? This sort of kicks off an arms race. Hiroshima and Nagasaki in the sense that it's a new kind of weapon. 
that right. people haven't seen before. People knew about various kinds of hacking attacks and cyber warfare. That wasn't a new idea. So what about this do you think is so disquieting? This stuff was happening already. It was going to keep happening. Well, re- remember that the difference with this weapon as opposed to some of the other weapons, yes, sir, sure, people were hacking. They were breaking in. They were stealing computer code. They were releasing information that people didn't want. They were spying. They were shutting down your computer. But in this case, the code is actually infecting the machines that operate the other machines. Right. And so now they're shutting down real-world devices or devices that are not computers. And that's probably the scary part. So you can imagine water filtration plants suddenly pumping out poison instead of good water. You can imagine planes being turned into... But that's not happening, right? This sort of came and went. If David Sanger from the New York Times hadn't been writing about this, we wouldn't know about it at all. Everything would be sort of proceeding as normal. And that's the scary part is that suddenly you'd have an explosion. You'd think, well... Why did that explosion happen? Did it just happen? And the pernicious aspect of these kinds of cyber weapons is that they are secret and that the United States and Israel have not taken credit for the Natanz attack. I think they want to. I think there's a part of them that's Your, pro- your movie is full of Israeli and, and U.S. government officials, current and ex, all sort of winking and nudging. Winking and nodding and nudging, but always saying, I, I cannot comment. Yeah. Ha, yes. Ha, ha, ha. ha, ha. Right. Again, uh, if you think that governments should have military operations, if you think they should have clandestine operations where they can't tell you what they're doing, isn't this just in line with that? Of course, we're not going to tell you where our spies are. We can't do that. That's the whole point of having spies. You have to trust. At some point, you have to – we have a system of checks and balances, but you have to allow us to do some work in secret in the interest of national security. I think that's true to some extent. But let's make the nuclear analogy again. We don't hand out the location of – all our missiles or the codes for those launches. But we do let people know that we actually have nuclear weapons. We have a sense, we have an international set of agreements that limits their use so that the whole world doesn't go up in flames. We understand capability, nuclear capability. And mind you, it took a lot of work to get the government to agree to start talking about that capability. So my takeaway from the film wouldn't be that everything that secret should be, you know, disclosed, it would be that we have to begin to at least start talking about the capability of these weapons, to admit that we developed them, and to begin to start forging some sort of international agreements on their use, or we're all going to go down. And we're going to go down in ways that we won't even know what hit us. Let me ask about the movie itself. Traditionally, people who make movies about computers (laughs) and the internet are really stymied, right? It's software. It's happening inside a computer. You can do the Tron or, or Matrix approach and create a whole new world that shows you what's happening inside the computer. Or you just have lots of shots of dudes typing and looking worried. You make documentaries, so you can't even show people creating the virus. Um, it's people talking about it. Uh, how do you approach sort of showing the story of a computer virus? That's a good question. I should say I've had some experience in this. Uh, you know, rule number 1A is, you know, never make a film about financial transactions, for example. And I, and I did Enron. We managed right. to – or never make a film about accounting, even worse. And it's like uh, – so I'm familiar with the challenge. In this case, the main character of the film is a virus. We worked hard with a, a company called Framestore, which – and they've done incredible work on films like Harry Potter and also Gravity and others – to come up with a look of the code – 
that made you feel like you were inside it and that it is, in fact, a living, breathing character. And we use the actual Stuxnet code. So that's part of it. So you're actually showing yeah, zeros and ones. Yeah, I'm actually showing dots. bits and pieces of the, of the actual right. code. But in addition, we frame the film as a kind of a detective story. Right. The beginning, there's a scene. It looks like it's a Steven Soderbergh or, or whatever sort of spy Matt Damon movie. Right. And, but, and, but it goes quickly into guys telling a story. Right. And, and two of our key detectives are the antivirus guys from Symantec, Liam Omurku and uh, uh, Eric Chen. And they're the ones who bit by bit broke down the code and discovered what it was. Because everybody was afraid that it might have been a kind of malicious code that would start shutting down grids all over the world. Nobody really knew until you you got into it. In fact, it was a very carefully targeted code. But as detectives, they're great. They're fantastic. And then inside the NSA, we found some sources, and we found a very unusual way of presenting those right. sources we in a way that spoil that. I, I don't want to spoil it, but it's an interesting way of 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 rendering them and, and keeping their identity secret by while at the same time uh, celebrating the, the sort of Matrix-like code world. Whenever I read about a hacking attack, uh, inevitably they end up saying there's an attack, it's thought to be an attack, we think it involves this, we ask a researcher to tell us this. And as a critical consumer of these stories, like I'm thinking that this is probably right, but I don't really know. And I don't know if the people telling me this really know. And very often the people who are telling me that this is a hacking attack come from people who are selling anti-hacking <laughs> software, right? And, and yes. in your case, you've got the same thing from Kaspersky. And in, in, in your movie, you also have – this is a secret classified mission. So there's a ton of doubt, I think, when, at least what it was for me. Like, do I really know if, if Alex knows what he's talking about? Is there another version of this story? First of all, do you think that you've got this thing nailed? Are you 100% confident? Yeah, we, we, we're feeling pretty good about this. It's not like we went out, talked to a couple of people, and then just put it up on the screen. Our story was pretty rigorously fact-checked from sources all over the world. Yeah. So we're pretty confident. And we also disclosed for the first time an operation that is much more sophisticated than Stuxnet. It's something called Nitro Zeus, in which the U.S. Uh, government – targeted the critical infrastructure of Iran in case there was a war and would allow us to basically shut down their grid. And do you feel like we're asking the reader to sort of take the, the, the viewer to take this leap of faith with me, um, but you do some things that sort of sow a little bit of doubt into sort of how you're telling the story. I guess you've got David Sanger from the time sort of as your sort of through line, right? Yeah, but I think at the end of the day, let's be honest and say the only way that people have of knowing that you're telling the truth is to trust you. And that comes usually both in terms of what you disclose about your own methods, and we do disclose them in the film, but also a, a record over time. Yeah. And I think my record over time has been pretty if good. If this was your first movie, it would be a different thing. You've Maybe. done this for yeah, years. That's right. What was the reaction from the government? The reaction from the government was, you know, we, we let the government know, or I should say via David Sanger, the New York Times. Sometimes it's hard for me to get the government on the phone. They don't respond to me as quickly as they do to the New York Times. But Imagine. via the New York Times, we were able to let the government know in advance that we were going to disclose some things that had never been uh, disclosed before. And the government wasn't happy, but they weren't willing to enlighten us or to uh, ask us not to publish. So there was no pressure on you to not go forward with this thing. They Correct. weren't cooperative, but this was not the church They were not cooperative, but yes, they didn't. Uh, when we were close to release, they did not pressure us to abandon. 
Let's talk about the Church of Scientology for a second. Uh, <laughs> we were talking before we started taping that, that if you Google you, which is how I do my primary research, because I'm very thorough, you get a bunch of results that are sponsored by the Church of Scientology, either they're actual ads or they're, or they're you know, they're attacks on you. Um, so you made Going Clear how long ago? Just a couple of years ago, right? Yeah, it, it was out, uh, I think, just over a year ago on HBO. So do you feel like you and the Church of Scientology are sort of going to be in conflict in perpetuity? Yes. Yeah, that, they're not going to let go of it. Baked into the, to the Church of Scientology is a doctrine called fair game, and that is that it's fair game to do anything to go after critics of the Church of Scientology. That was something invented early on by L. Ron Hubbard. And you knew that going in when you made the movie? Yep. And now that you've made the movie and they're, they're still after you, at least in this... Uh, at least I have somebody who shows up. Whenever I go to Los Angeles, I have somebody who shows up and positions himself, you know, very close to the uh, front row of the audience so I can see him, so he can bore his eyes into, into my brain as if, you know, he was one of the children of the damned or something. And that's, that's supposed to disquiet me. He's making a documentary about me. I, I look forward to seeing it at some time in the near future. But I always make a point of introducing him. I said, everybody should know. Here's that my guy. Here's, here's my guy. He's here from the Church of Scientology, and he's making a documentary. Please stand up and take a bow. And that's usually fairly disarming. I should say, though, that you know, for all the kind of ham-fisted attempts that they've made to discredit me, you know, they took out a full-page ad in the New York Times and the LA Times, They've done some things to people who are in the film, which is really quite malicious and pernicious. You know, they, they, they hire private investigators, for example, and they intimidate, particularly the women who are in the film. And that's been reported to me by them. They're walking down the street at night. Big hulking guys are following them. And recently, it was reported by the Los Angeles Times, I believe, that somebody was picked up by the police. He was carrying a number of weapons and about 2,000 rounds of ammunition. And he was surveilling Ron Miscavige, who was the father of David Miscavige, the head of the church. <laughs> but w- when you're carrying 2,000 rounds of ammunition surveilling somebody, it takes on a different mm-hmm. vibe. Does that influence your choice of, of films going forward? <laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe I should do something on bunny rabbits. Or- yeah. That, my wife is often very encouraging about that kind of subject. Puppies. People you like know, puppies. They do like puppies. Penguins. I'm afraid that if I did a film about a puppy, something bad might happen to the puppy. As someone who makes movies about powerful people who you accuse of wrongdoing, who often are doing wrongdoing, have you thought at all about the Peter Thiel Gawker case and what it means to go after someone who has astonishing resources and the ability to chase you down over many, many years? I have thought about that. And in fact, it was very much the playbook of the Church of Scientology. Uh, I give tremendous credit to HBO because they backed us up legally, not only in-house, but also hired First Amendment counsel to field the avalanche of legal paper that we got threatening us. And that's very much the MO, is to drown you in expenses, an MO of powerful organizations and individuals. And it's something I'm very concerned about and actually working with a number of uh, First Amendment legal societies to come up with strategies to – make sure that powerful people don't just use their pocketbooks to shut people up. So you think that that is a, that is a real concern? Because a lot of folks say, oh, listen, Gawker got what they got coming to them. No one else is going to deal with this. Uh, this is a one-off thing. It's not a one-off thing. And you know, Mother Jones had to defend itself against a very powerful individual not very long ago. It cost them, I believe, over $2 million for Mother Jones. That's real money. 
There was uh, Sheldon Adelson, I believe, went after uh, some folks in the media. So it's becoming something of an ugly trend. And particularly as income inequality grows ever more vast, I think the concern is is troubling. Jane Mayer, who is just the, the New Yorker writer, has just written a book about the Koch brothers. And, you know, she describes in the book, uh, you know, some dirty tricks mounted against her paid for by powerful organizations. And and I should say this is not just for the press, but it often happens with politicians. I did a film called Client 9 about Elliot Spitzer. And one of the things that was interesting to me in doing that film was a hidden story about his very powerful enemies and how they used their resources to hire private detectives to effectively bring him down. Uh, you are making a film that's not about bunnies, but it is it is unlikely to get a lawsuit, right? It's a, It is fiction. It is a narrative feature film. What's that going to be? It's called uh, The Action, and or at least that's the, the, the title for the moment. We haven't shot it. This uh, is your first, but this is your first This would be film, my right? first uh, scripted feature. Uh-huh. So why do that now? Uh, because the story's good. What's uh, the story? The story is a wonderful story about, and it's, uh, I suppose, related to this. It's kind of an origin story of surveillance. It's about a small group of citizens who, back in 1971, had the vibe that the FBI was doing something untoward in terms of spying on and discrediting people. So they broke in to the FBI office in Media, Pennsylvania, the night of the Ali Fraser fight in Madison Square Garden. That gave them wonderful cover. Mm -hmm. Everyone was watching that fight. And it was very politically charged, that fight. And they stole all the documents in the office. What they discovered in those documents was reference to an operation called COINTELPRO, which was the J. Edgar Hoover dirty tricks operation to not only spy on people but also to discredit them. And it had a huge impact. So it's a wonderful story about everyday people kind of striking back. And And it's a heist film. Right. So it's fun. And 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 then you move into an era in the 70s where you have – because of that and and also Watergate and a whole bunch of other stuff that that comes to light, you have enormous distrust of the government and the government sort of pulls back on what it can do in terms of surveillance or what it says it's going to do in terms of surveillance. And then we cycle back to sort of 2001 and people saying, oh, we we should be much more aggressive about the way we do this sort of policing and interrogating and and spying. Do you think that we're going to cycle back – uh, sort of away from that again now? Well, I, I think, you know, in the wake of, of WikiLeaks and the Snowden revelations, you know, people have developed, I think, a healthy distrust of the government, particularly when the government lies to us. You know, when James Clapper lied to the Senate, you know, that was a disquieting moment. But so, it seems like there's two trends. One is a distrust of the government and we don't want yes, to be lied to. Yes, and protect us, protect us, protect, protect us. us. Why didn't you guys and, pick and, up this guy in Orlando? Exactly. Why is he allowed to buy a gun? He should be on a no-fly list. He should be on a no-gun buying list. And I think it, it is a tension. And we do want to be protected and we should be protected. And, and I'm involved in another story and I did a short piece about it for The New Yorker Presents about um, a moment when – you know, the CIA didn't pass on information it had, which led to 9-11. And, uh, you know, the, so there is a real tension between security and freedom. But it's a tension that I think we have to embrace uh, on both sides. You know, we want security, but we also want our freedom. And, and frankly, when it comes to terror, one of the things that the goal, I would say, of, of terrorists very often is to provoke us to run away from our core values so that they can use that hypocrisy as a recruiting tool. And that, I think, is something that we should resist. 
We could keep talking about this for hours, but, <laughs> but you've got movies to promote. People should watch your movie. Do you care if they see it in the theater? Do you want them to watch it at home? Do you want to watch them? To, you want them to watch it. Period. I want them. To, I want them to watch it. Period, and watch it on a good screen because we spent a lot of time making it a pretty powerful cinematic experience. I think. So you know, whether if you've got a good screen at home with good speakers, fine. If you want to go out to the theater with a few friends. Good. I watched on a MacBook with your coding on it, so I couldn't uh, distribute it. Um, and it was great there, so I imagine it'd be even <laughs> better on a big screen. Alex Gibney, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Peter. If you guys like listening to this, I hope you did. We don't ask for much. You can get this for free on iTunes or Google Play or Spotify. All we do ask is that you subscribe, maybe leave a rating. If you're feeling really generous, tell a friend. That helps as well. Uh, and if you do like this stuff, Kara Swisher has more for you at Recode Decode. Lauren Good has Too Embarrassed to Ask. Recode Replay has all our conference audio. All free, all for you. This is Recode Media. I'm Peter Kafka. I will see you next week.